Twelve Years a Slave Solomon Northup Chapter 18 Wiley suffered severely at the hands of Master Epps, as has been related in the preceding chapter, but in this respect he fared no worse than his unfortunate companions. Spare the rod was an idea scouted by our master. He was constitutionally subject to periods of ill-humor, and at such times, however little provocation there might be, a certain amount of punishment was inflicted. The circumstances attending the last flogging but one that I received will show how trivial a cause was sufficient with him for resorting to the whip. A Mr. O'Neill, residing in the vicinity of the Big Pine Woods, called upon Epps for the purpose of purchasing me. He was a tanner and courier by occupation, transacting an extensive business, and intended to place me at service in some department of his establishment, provided he bought me. Aunt Phoebe, while preparing the dinner table in the great house, overheard their conversation. On returning to the yard at night, the old woman ran to meet me, designing, of course, to overwhelm me with the news. She entered into a minute repetition of all she'd heard, and Aunt Phoebe was one whose ears never failed to drink in every word of conversation uttered in her hearing. She enlarged upon the fact that Massa Epps was going to sell me to a tana oba in de pine woods, so long and loudly as to attract the attention of the mistress, who, standing unobserved on the piazza at the time, was listening to our conversation. Well, Aunt Phoebe, I said, I'm glad of it. I'm tired of scraping cotton and would rather be a tanner. I hope he'll buy me. O'Neill did not effect a purchase, however, the parties differing as to price, and the morning following his arrival departed homewards. He'd been gone but a short time when Epps made his appearance in the field. Now nothing will more violently enrage a master, especially Epps, than the intimation of one of his servants that he would like to leave him. Mistress Epps had repeated to him my expressions to Aunt Phoebe the evening previous, as I learned from the latter afterwards, the mistress having mentioned to her that she had overheard us. On entering the field, Epps walked directly to me. So, Platt, you're tired of scraping cotton, are you? You'd like to change your master, eh? You're fond of moving round, traveler, ain't you? And yes, like to travel for your health, maybe. Feel above cotton scraping, I suppose. So you're going into the tanning business. Good business. Devilish fine business. Enterprising nigger. Believe I'll go into that business myself. Down on your knees and strip that rag off your back. I'll try my hand at tanning. I begged earnestly and endeavored to soften him with excuses, but in vain. There was no other alternative... So, kneeling down, I presented my bare back for the application of the lash. "'How do you like tanning?' he exclaimed as the rawhide descended upon my flesh. "'How do you like tanning?' he repeated at every blow. In this manner, he gave me twenty or thirty lashes, incessantly giving utterance to the word tanning in one form of expression or another. When sufficiently tanned, he allowed me to rise, and with a half-malicious laugh, assured me, if I still fancied the business, he'd give me further instruction in it whenever I desired. This time, he remarked, he'd only given me a short lesson in tanning. The next time, he'd curry me down. 
Uncle Abram also was frequently treated with great brutality, although he was one of the kindest and most faithful creatures in the world. He was my cabin mate for years. There was a benevolent expression in the old man's face, pleasant to behold. He regarded us with a kind of parental feeling, always counseling us with remarkable gravity and deliberation. Returning from Marshall's plantation one afternoon, whither I'd been sent on some errand of the mistress, I found him lying on the cabin floor, his clothes saturated with blood. He informed me that he'd been stabbed. While spreading cotton on the scaffold, Epps came home intoxicated from Holmesville. He found fault with everything, giving many orders so directly contrary that it was impossible to execute any of them. Uncle Abram, whose faculties were growing dull, became confused and committed some blunder of no particular consequence. Epps was so enraged thereat that, with drunken recklessness, he flew upon the old man and stabbed him in the back. It was a long, ugly wound, but didn't happen to penetrate far enough to result fatally. It was sewed up by the mistress, who censured her husband with extreme severity, not only denouncing his inhumanity, but declaring that she expected nothing else than that he would bring the family to poverty, that he would kill all the slaves on the plantation in some of his drunken fits. It was no uncommon thing with him to prostrate Aunt Phoebe with a chair or a stick of wood. But the most cruel whipping that ever I was doomed to witness, one I can never recall with any other emotion than that of horror, was inflicted on the unfortunate Patsy. It's been seen that the jealousy and hatred of Mistress Epps made the daily life of her young and agile slave completely miserable. I'm happy in the belief that on numerous occasions I was the means of averting punishment from the inoffensive girl. In Epps' absence, the mistress often ordered me to whip her without the remotest provocation. I'd refuse, saying that I feared my master's displeasure, and several times ventured to remonstrate with her against the treatment Patsy received. I endeavored to impress her with the truth that the latter was not responsible for the acts of which she complained, but that she being a slave and subject entirely to her master's will, he alone was answerable. At length, the green-eyed monster crept into the soul of Epps also, and then it was that he joined with his wrathful wife in an infernal jubilee over the girl's miseries. On a Sabbath day in hoeing time not long ago, we were on the bayou bank washing our clothes, as was our usual custom. Presently, Patsy was missing. Epps called aloud, but there was no answer. No one had observed her leaving the yard, and it was a wonder with us whither she'd gone. In the course of a couple of hours, she was seen approaching from the direction of Shaw's. This man, as has been intimated, was a notorious profligate and withal not on the most friendly terms with Epps. Harriet, his black wife, knowing Patsy's troubles, was kind to her, in consequence of which the latter was in the habit of going over to see her at every opportunity. Her visits were prompted by friendship merely, but the suspicion gradually entered the brain of Epps that another and a baser passion led her there, that it was not Harriet she desired to meet, but rather the unblushing libertine, his neighbor. Patsy found her master in a fearful rage on her return. 
His violence so alarmed her that at first she attempted to evade direct answers to his questions, which only served to increase his suspicions. She finally, however, drew herself up proudly and in a spirit of indignation boldly denied his charges. Mrs. Don't Give Me Soap to Wash With as she does the rest, said Patsy. And you know why? I went over to Harriet's to get a piece. And saying this, she drew it forth from a pocket in her dress and exhibited it to him. That's what I went to Shaw's for, Massa Epps, she continued. The Lord knows that was all. You lie, you black wench, shouted Epps. I don't lie, Massa. If you kill me, I'll stick to that. Oh, I'll fetch you down. I'll learn you to go to Shaw's. I'll take the starch out of you, he muttered fiercely through his shut teeth. Then turning to me, he ordered four stakes to be driven into the ground, pointing with the toe of his boot to the places where he wanted them. When the stakes were driven down, he ordered her to be stripped of every article of dress. Ropes were then brought, and the naked girl was laid upon her face, her wrists and feet each tied firmly to a stake. Stepping to the piazza, he took down a heavy whip, and placing it in his hands, commanded me to lash her. Unpleasant as it was, I was compelled to obey him. Nowhere that day, on the face of the whole earth, I venture to say, was there such a demoniac exhibition witnessed as then ensued. Mistress Epps stood on the piazza among her children, gazing on the scene with an air of heartless satisfaction. The slaves were huddled together at a little distance, their countenances indicating the sorrow of their hearts. Poor Patsy prayed piteously for mercy, but her prayers were vain. Epps ground his teeth and stamped upon the ground, screaming at me like a mad fiend to strike harder. Strike harder, or your turn'll come next, you scoundrel, he yelled. Oh, mercy, massa! Oh, have mercy, do! Oh, God, pity me! Patsy exclaimed continually, struggling fruitlessly and the flesh quivering at every stroke. When I'd struck her as many as thirty times, I stopped and turned round toward Epps, hoping he was satisfied. But with bitter oaths and threats, he ordered me to continue. I inflicted ten or fifteen blows more. By this time, her back was covered with long welts, intersecting each other like network. Epps was yet furious and savage as ever, demanding if she would like to go to Shaw's again and swearing he'd flog her until she wished she was in hell. Throwing down the whip, I declared I could punish her no more. He ordered me to go on, threatening me with a severer flogging than she'd received in case of refusal. My heart revolted at the inhuman scene, and risking the consequences, I absolutely refused to raise the whip. He then seized it himself and applied it with tenfold greater force than I had. The painful cries and shrieks of the tortured Patsy, mingling with the loud and angry curses of Epps, loaded the air. She was terribly lacerated. I may say, without exaggeration, literally flayed. The lash was wet with blood, which flowed down her sides and dropped upon the ground. At length, she ceased struggling. Her head sank listlessly on the ground, her screams and supplications gradually decreased and died away into a low moan. She no longer writhed and shrank beneath the lash when it bit out small pieces of her flesh. 
I thought that she was dying. It was the Sabbath of the Lord. The fields smiled in the warm sunlight. The birds chirped merrily amidst the foliage of the trees. Peace and happiness seemed to reign everywhere, save in the bosoms of Epps and his panting victim and the silent witnesses around him. The tempestuous emotions that were raging there were little in harmony with the calm and quiet beauty of the day. I could look on Epps only with unutterable loathing and abhorrence, and thought within myself, Thou devil, sooner or later, somewhere in the course of eternal justice, thou shalt answer for this sin. Finally he ceased whipping from mere exhaustion, and ordered Phoebe to bring a bucket of salt and water. After washing her thoroughly with this, I was told to take her to her cabin. Untying the ropes, I raised her in my arms. She was unable to stand, and her head rested on my shoulder. She repeated many times, in a faint voice scarcely perceptible, O oh, Platt! O oh, Platt! But nothing further. Her dress was replaced, but it clung to her back, and she was soon stiff with blood. We laid her on some boards in the hut where she remained a long time, with eyes closed and groaning in agony. At night, Phoebe applied melted tallow to her wounds, and so far as we were able, all endeavored to assist and console her. Day after day, she lay in her cabin upon her face, the sores preventing her resting in any other position. A blessed thing it would have been for her. Days and weeks and months of misery it would have saved her had she never lifted up her head in life again. Indeed, from that time forward, she was not what she had been. The burden of a deep melancholy weighed heavily on her spirits. She no longer moved with that buoyant and elastic step. There was not that mirthful sparkle in her eyes that formerly distinguished her. The bounding vigor, the sprightly laughter-loving spirit of her youth was gone. She fell into a mournful and desponding mood, and oftentimes would start up in her sleep with raised hands, plead for mercy. She became more silent than she was, toiling all day in our midst, not uttering a word. A careworn, pitiful expression settled on her face, and it was her humor now to weep rather than rejoice. If ever there was a broken heart, one crushed and blighted by the rude grasp of suffering and misfortune, it was Patsy's. She'd been reared no better than her master's beast, looked upon merely as a valuable and handsome animal, and consequently possessed but a limited amount of knowledge. And yet a faint light cast its rays over her intellect, so that it was not wholly dark. She had a dim perception of God and of eternity, and a still more dim perception of a Savior who had died even for such as her. She entertained but confused notions of a future life, not comprehending the distinction between the corporeal and the spiritual existence. Happiness, in her mind, was exemption from stripes, from labor, from the cruelty of masters and overseers. Her idea of the joy of heaven was simply rest and is fully expressed in these lines of a melancholy bard. I ask no paradise on high, with cares on earth oppressed, the only heaven for which I sigh is rest, eternal rest. It's a mistaken opinion that prevails in some quarters that the slave does not understand the term, does not comprehend the idea of freedom. 
Even on Bayou Boeuf, where I conceive slavery exists in its most abject and cruel form, where it exhibits features altogether unknown in more northern states, the most ignorant of them generally know full well its meaning. They understand the privileges and exemptions that belong to it, that it would bestow upon them the fruits of their own labors, and that it would secure to them the enjoyment of domestic happiness. They don't fail to observe the difference between their own condition and the meanest white man's, and to realize the injustice of the laws which place it in his power not only to appropriate the profits of their industry, but to subject them to unmerited and unprovoked punishment without remedy or the right to resist or to remonstrate. Patsy's life, especially after her whipping, was one long dream of liberty. Far away to her fancy and a measurable distance, she knew there was a land of freedom. A thousand times she'd heard that somewhere in the distant north there were no slaves, no masters. In her imagination it was an enchanted region, the paradise of the earth. To dwell where the black man may work for himself, to live in his own cabin, till his own soil, was a blissful dream of Patsy's, a dream, alas, the fulfillment of which she can never realize. The effect of these exhibitions of brutality on the household of the slaveholder is apparent. Epps' oldest son is an intelligent lad of ten or twelve years of age. It is pitiable, sometimes, to see him chastising, for instance, the venerable Uncle Abram. He'll call the old man to account, and if, in his childish judgment, it's necessary, sentence him to a certain number of lashes, which he proceeds to inflict with much gravity and deliberation. Mounted on his pony, he often rides into the field with his whip, playing the overseer, greatly to his father's delight. Without discrimination at such times, he applies the rawhide, urging the slaves forward with shouts and occasional expressions of profanity, while the old man laughs and commends him as a thoroughgoing boy. The child is father to the man, and with such training, whatever may be his natural disposition, it cannot well be otherwise than that, on arriving at maturity, the sufferings and miseries of the slave will be looked upon with entire indifference. The influence of the iniquitous system necessarily fosters an unfeeling and cruel spirit, even in the bosoms of those who, among their equals, are regarded as humane and generous. Young Master Epps possessed some noble qualities, yet no process of reasoning could lead him to comprehend that in the eye of the Almighty there's no distinction of color. He looked upon the black man simply as an animal, differing in no respect from any other animal, save in the gift of speech and the possession of somewhat higher instincts and therefore the more valuable. To work like his father's mules, to be whipped and kicked and scourged through life, to address the white man with hat in hand, and eyes bent servilely on the earth, in his mind, was the natural and proper destiny of the slave. Brought up with such ideas, in the notion that we stand without the pale of humanity, no wonder the oppressors of my people are a pitiless and unrelenting race.